Good morning, LifeBridge. Thank you for joining us online for our very first online worship service. And uh, man, we're so excited to be able to do this. So thank you for joining in while we are scattered across the Northland in our homes. And, uh, you know, this is not the norm. It's certainly not the ideal for God's people when it comes to worship and corporate worship in particular. And yet we're so, so thankful for the technology that allows us to stay connected and allows us to proclaim the truth of God's word while we are scattered here and yet we can gather together in the truth of God's word, the hope of God's word, and proclaiming it is needed now more than ever. Remember, the church is very much alive today because the church is not buildings. The church is us. It's me. It's you. It's the people who are alive in Jesus Christ. And so also remember, God is still in control even of this situation, even as we navigate uncharted territory and we try to overcome the challenges uh, with the impact of the coronavirus. I I really uh, agree with what Louis Giglio said last Sunday. God has never been without a plan. He has never been without purpose. He always has been sovereign. I believe in some way he's going to use the spread of this virus and he's going to turn the story around for good. Man, that's what we believe here at LifeBridge. And that's our prayer and that's our uh, hope that God takes this and turns the hearts of people toward him during this pandemic, this crisis, while people are filled with fear and panic And God uses this to turn their hearts toward the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to get started here, and I hope you have your Bibles. Perhaps you've got a a cup of coffee in one hand as well. If you don't have your Bible, let me encourage you to go grab it and then join us for our scripture reading. And we're going to be turning to the book of Matthew, and Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 26. So if you have your Bibles and you're ready, let's follow along as I read this text, this patches of scripture for us that we're going to look at this morning. Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Matthew writes, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. 
And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. You know, over the last few weeks, we have heard one phrase repeated over and over and over again. And that is, wash your hands. Wash your hands. In fact, most of you know that my wife is in the medical profession. She's a physical therapist. And, uh, and so she has been saying that to myself and our son Jack all last week. In fact, even the week before, just reminding us over and over again, wash your hands, wash your hands. In fact, she almost asked, asked us different times. She even put post-it notes up all through our house, just kidding on that, that reminds us to wash our hands. But we understand how critical it is to wash our sins, I mean our hands, in killing those germs and washing away any virus. And so by all means, let us continue to wash our hands. But there's another virus, one that's more deadly, more destructive than COVID-19, that has infected all of humanity, and that is sin. Now, the problem is you can't wash away sin with soap and water. Listen, we can, we can wash all we want. We can wash repeatedly, and we are all still going to be infected with sin. And so here's the all important question for us. What can wash away my sin? Now, as we continue in our series, The Passion of Christ, we find Jesus standing before a very perplexed politician. His name is Pilate, and he's the man who eventually handed Jesus over to be crucified. But before doing so, he washed his hands, and then he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. You see, Pilate thought that he could just wash away his guilt by washing his hands in a basin of water. And so for this reason, the tragic image of Pilate's life is a basin of water. But more importantly, this basin of water is a symbol for the ultimate question of every human being, and that is, What can wash away my sin? That's a question every human being should stop and ponder and be asking themselves. What can wash away my sin? It's the question Peter asked after he denied Jesus Christ. It's the question that Judas asked after he betrayed Jesus. And both men wept bitterly over their guilt and over their sin. We already have seen how Judas went to the chief priest hoping that they could wash away his sin, but they could not. And where we saw last week, uh, Peter, instead he went to Jesus, who could wash away his sin. Here in this story, we find Pilate, and he's trying to wash away his sin in a basin of water, but as we will see, he still has blood on his hands, and he has guilt in his heart. Now, before we proceed, who is Pilate exactly? Well, Pilate served as the Roman governor of Judea, He was really responsible for two things, to collect the taxes for Rome and to keep the peace of Rome. And in order to fulfill these two primary responsibilities, the Romans usually let 
the local people, keep their own religion and try to manage their own affairs. But Pilate had considerable difficulty in keeping the peace because of the constant revolutions that were rising up among the Jewish people. And perhaps this is why he was considered such a a ruthless tyrant. And he even despised the Jews because of this. They were making his job as governor difficult. And they, in turn, returned the favor. Now, as we follow the trial of, of Jesus here, I want to ask you to do something with me, and that is to put yourself in the sandals of this perplexed politician as we answer this all-important question. And that is, what can wash away my sins? Now, the answer to this question unfolds in a, in a series of stages, three in particular. What we're going to see is Pilate's dilemma, and then Pilate's deliberation, and then Pilate's decision. The trial begins with Pilate's dilemma, and here Jesus is standing before the governor, and he's not resisting, he's not defending himself. And remember, the Jewish religious leaders have already charged Jesus with blasphemy in their own trial, which was punishable by death according to their own laws. And after all, that's really all they wanted. They, they, had no, um, they didn't want an execution. Rather, they just wanted a, uh, a fair... They, didn't want a, they wanted an execution, not a fair trial, I should say. But there was one problem with this. The Jewish leaders could not condemn a man to death. But they, could, they couldn't carry it out either. So before Jesus could be put to death, Pilate had to agree to it. And this is why Jesus is brought before the governor. They could condemn him, but they couldn't execute the sentence. And in this case, the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate to put him in sort of a a squeeze play. They're basically saying to Pilate, this man is a criminal, and we want you to execute him. And if you don't, then you're no friend of Caesar. In other words, they were threatening Pilate with his livelihood because they knew he was already on thin ice with the emperor of Rome. And basically, that's Pilate's dilemma. He had to choose either his job or choose Jesus. And so now Jesus comes before Pilate in this trial. And Jesus is accused by the Jewish religious leaders. And Pilate comes out and he asks Jesus a few routine questions like, what is the charge against this man? And John tells us the religious leaders didn't want to answer directly or truthfully since there was no Roman law against blasphemy. That was the Jewish matter. And they knew Pilate would just simply kind of wave his hand of the matter, and that would be it. And so now they come up quickly with three charges. And according to Luke 23, 2, they are this. It says, and they began to accuse him. That is Jesus saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. Now, the assertion that we found is false. They found no evidence of these charges, even in their own religious trial. And so now they're mixing lies with truth in order to manipulate Pilate to do what they wanted done. Nevertheless, this third charge caught Pilate's attention, since any mention of king was seen as a threat to Rome. And so Pilate interrogated Jesus about his kingship because that was the crucial issue. Notice what it says here in verse 11 of Matthew 27. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
That's what the Jewish leaders were saying about Jesus. Now, it meant one thing to them, the Messiah, but it meant something else to the Romans, a military leader. Jesus' answer is, is deliberately vague when he answers in verse 11, you have said so. And then according to verse 12, the religious leaders began accusing Jesus again over and over, trying to make their case against Jesus to Pilate. But notice how Jesus responds to all these accusations in verse 12. He gave no answer. And this astonishes Pilate. He is utterly amazed by this. Pilate, who is used to dealing with defendants, is astonished of Jesus' refusal to now defend himself. And so Pilate said to Jesus in verse 13, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And verse 14 says, but he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, obviously, the governor here is, he's not familiar with the prophecy that was written about the Messiah In the scriptures of Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Pilate doesn't know what to think about Jesus. It could be he's never seen anything like him. It could be he found the charges to be bogus. It could be that he has heard things about Jesus. Regardless, Pilate is utterly amazed about Jesus and his silence. Now, Whatever Pilate thought about Jesus as king of the Jews, we know Pilate is beginning to form his own opinion here. He's coming to a conclusion about Jesus, and that is he's not guilty. Rather, he's innocent. In fact, according to Luke, Pilate actually declares three different times during the trial, I find no fault in this man. But the Jewish leaders were insistent that Pilate condemned Jesus to death. So what is Pilate to do? Well, the Jewish leaders are screaming for Jesus' head, and yet he knows that Jesus is innocent. As a Roman governor, he's obligated to uphold the law, but as a politician, he knew he had to keep the peace. So what is Pilate to do? Well, we might say he's caught in a pickle, in one that he can't outrun. Now, if you were Pilate, what would you have done? Pilate did what most of us would do. That is, he looked for a way out of his dilemma, which brings us to now his deliberation. Clearly, Pilate wants no part of this whole mess. He knows that the religious leaders are just using him in order to execute Jesus. But he also knows that Jesus is innocent. He knows, according to verse 18, that it was way, it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. You see, Pilate's in this deliberation now. He wants to solve his dilemma, but he doesn't want to make any decision about Jesus. But as we will see, that's an impossibility. The whole point of Pilate's story here, the whole reason why it's recorded for us in the book of Matthew is to show us that there comes a point in all of our lives when you have to make a decision about Jesus Christ. In fact, in his handling of Jesus' trial here, Pilate's biggest mistake was he proved to be indecisive. He kept looking for a loophole, but he found none. In fact, notice here the cowardice of Pilate. He actually tried three different times to avoid making a decision about Jesus. 
First of all, Pilate tried to escape his duty by sending the case to King Herod. He tried to pass the buck to King Herod. In fact, according to Luke 23, 5, when Pilate discovered that, that Jesus was from Galilee, he immediately saw an opportunity to kind of get Jesus off his hands since Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction. But all Herod did was, was mock Jesus and then sent him back to Pilate. And so if Pilate hoped to escape his duty here, he was severely disappointed. Well, Pilate tries another way to avoid his responsibility. He tried to appease the crowd by scourging Jesus. In fact, here in Matthew's account, it appears that the scourging happens right before Jesus walks to the cross. But in John's account, it shows Pilate actually had Jesus scourged in an attempt to appease the angry crowd so execution could be avoided. When the crowd cried out to have Jesus crucified, John tells us in chapter 19, verse 1, that the people said, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And according to verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, scourging, most of us are familiar with that a little bit. We've heard that term. It was used by the Romans, and it was a, a terrible punishment with excruciating pain. The Jews punished people by, by whipping criminals, but it was limited to 40 lashes according to the Old Testament law. The Romans, on the other hand, they used their ingenuity and actually made improvements on the scourging as a punishment. In fact, according to Don Carson, he says their whip was the dreaded flagellum, and it was made by taking long strips of leather and braiding in pieces of bone or lead. The criminal was then tied to a post, stripped naked, and beaten as long as the Roman soldiers wanted. In severe beatings, the flogging not only reduced the flesh to a bloody pulp, but could open the body uh, until the bones were visible and the entrails exposed. In fact, scourging was often done in preparation for one's crucifixion. And it was so severe that the person receiving the scourging, scourging didn't even survive. Now, there is nothing here about this beating that Jesus deserves. Pilate knows it. He's innocent. He deserves none of it. And yet, after seeing Jesus scourged, Pilate was hoping that the crowd would relent, but he misjudged their hatred. Listen, the smell of blood was blowing in the air, and they cried out all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Now, if Pilate can't pass Jesus off to Herod, and if he can't appease the crowd, then maybe he can try a sort of a, a political maneuver. So Pilate tried to actually bargain for Jesus' release. Unable to stand on his own convictions of knowing that Jesus is innocent, Pilate laid aside the question of Jesus' innocence, and he now chooses to treat him as an ordinary criminal. And then acting as if Jesus deserved to be a criminal, Pilate offered now to set him free. In verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, referring to the Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, this was a great PR boost for the Romans. In fact, it was one of the very few things that Pilate did that the Jews actually liked. But there was one hitch. The people had to agree with it. And so Pilate offered the, 
offered to them the most notorious criminal he had, Barabbas. Pilate reasoned the crowd would reject Barabbas and ask for Jesus' release instead. For, for surely Barabbas was the last man that the Jews would want turned loose on the streets. Pilate, hoping for an easy way out, he asked the crowd a simple question in verse 17. Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate's hope for an easy way out is dashed as the people reject Jesus and again cry out, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now, it's interesting, in the midst of all this maneuvering, that God actually used Pilate's wife to send him a message. We read here in Matthew 27 in verse 19 where it says, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, no doubt, Pilate paused for a moment to consider this. Surely this message from his wife shook him up. And now he is thinking even more about the dilemma with Jesus. But no man can think about Jesus forever. Pilate's moment to decide is quickly passing. The people have spoken. They want Barabbas set free and Jesus to die. And that's when Pilate asked his crucial question. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, it's the final act of a very desperate man. You see, Pilate knows what he should do, but he's afraid to do it. The crowd's answer is deafening. Let him be crucified. Pilate now tries to reason with them again in verse 23. Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Now, in one sense, When you step back from the story, Pilate's story, it's it's actually quite fascinating. And what we find here is is time and again, the gospel writers, all four of the gospel writers, stress that Pilate found Jesus innocent. But what's a man to do? I honestly think that for all the pressure, Pilate would have released Jesus with only a scourging, except for one thing. The Jewish leaders played their trump card. They told Pilate in John 19, 12, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And Pilate knew exactly what they meant. It was blackmail, pure and simple. And it worked. You see, if the choice were simply between Jesus and the Jews, Pilate would have let Jesus go. But that's not exactly how it was. The blackmail made the choice between Jesus and Rome. And a man will do many things to save his job. In the end, it came down to self-preservation on Pilate's part. And this brings us to Pilate's regrettable decision. It all came down to this. Pilate wanted, oh, he wanted to release Jesus, but to do so without any cost to him personally. He wanted to let Jesus go, but without having to to take a personal stand for Jesus. He admired Jesus in a way, but not enough 
to believe in him, not enough to set him free. And so Pilate finally capitulated to private blackmail and public pressure. We see this here in verse 24 where it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, washing his hands, that was an act that the Jewish people would clearly understand since it was a Jewish custom. This common gesture was meant to reinforce Pilate's claim of innocence of Jesus' blood. Now, of course, that's preposterous. Pilate can wash his hands all he wants, but he is not clean. Pilate is guilty here, regardless of washing his hands, regardless of saying he's innocent. You see, Pilate could use all the water in the Mediterranean Sea, and it still wouldn't wash away his guilt. He is guilty of cowardice in a moment of crisis. He is guilty of crucifying an innocent man to save his own job. But no matter how hard Pilate scrubbed and scrubbed and scrubbed, there was no way for him to wash away his guilt in his heart. Pilate may have cleansed his hands, But let me tell you, he could not cleanse his conscience. No, Pilate, it won't work. Look at your hands. They are covered with innocent blood. According to verse 26, Pilate, you released Barabbas to the crowd. You delivered Jesus to be crucified. And now this memory will haunt you forever. The screams from Golgotha will ring in your ears until the day you die. In fact, legend has it. That years after Jesus' crucifixion, Pilate was still frantically washing his hands, trying to cleanse his conscience from the blood of Jesus Christ. After washing his hands, Pilate said to the people, see to it yourselves. He meant, do what you will. I'm not responsible for this, but not so fast. As governor, Pilate is responsible, whether he admits it or not. You see, we cannot eradicate our guilt simply by washing our hands and saying, I'm innocent. You see, Pilate had no right to wash his hands of Jesus. But the crowd accepted it nonetheless and and even went so far as to say in verse 25, his blood, Jesus' blood, be on us and on our children. Now, this is chilling. The mob actually takes the blame for Jesus' death. I mean, what are they thinking here? But listen, his blood is on us as well. For we all are guilty of Jesus' death with our own sin. And that's why the ultimate question of every human being is what can wash away My sin. And the glorious answer we find here in the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, it's rather interesting that many of these same people who called, who who cried out for Jesus' crucifixion, later on heard Peter preaching. 
And when they heard Peter preaching, they were eventually cut to the heart with conviction over their own guilt and sin. In fact, at one point in Peter's sermon, he says in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. So what is the answer? Is there an answer for our sin? Yes, that is the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter tells them the answer here in verse 19. He says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You may be wondering, well, how can that be? I mean, how how can a holy God simply blot out people's sin? In other words, how can God just wash away my sin and take away my guilt? Well, the Bible explains how in several places. But here's what I love about Matthew's account. And the story we have in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew here actually shows us the answer when Pilate released Barabbas to the crowd and delivered Jesus to be crucified. Do you see it here? That's a picture of substitution. Pilate, I mean, Barabbas is guilty and he's deserving of death. Jesus is innocent and deserving of life. And yet, what we see here is Barabbas goes free, and Jesus is the one who is crucified. Listen, that is the gospel in a nutshell. Because just like Barabbas, we are all guilty, and we are all deserving of death. We're the ones who deserve it, but Jesus is the one who took it for us. His life is given in exchange for ours. The Apostle Paul says it simply this way in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross becomes sin for us. One German theologian put it this way, and I love how he words it. Listen to it. Barabbas and Jesus change places. The murderer's bonds, curse, Disgrace and mortal agony are transferred to the righteous Jesus, while the liberty, innocence, safety, and well-being of the immaculate Nazarene become the lot of the murderer. In Barabbas' deliverance, we see our own. Left to ourselves, we should have been eternally lost. When Christ exchanged positions with us, our position was decided. Since he became a criminal in your stead, you are counted righteous for his sake. Since he was rejected in your stead, you are now admitted into favor with God. And since he bore your curse, you are heirs of his blessing. Since he suffered your punishment, you are destined to share his happiness. And so when the crowd screamed out and when they said, his blood be on us, little did they know that the blood of Jesus would become the only way to wash away our sins. That brings us to Pilate's final question to the crowd. What shall I do with Jesus, who was called Christ? You know, that question still rings out 
even today? There's only two possible answers. We either reject him in unbelief or we receive him in saving faith. Listen, there's no middle ground to this. No decision is an impossibility when it comes to Jesus Christ. You can say whatever about whether you'll eat at McDonald's or Wendy's. When you're, you can say you decide if your wife asks which movie you're going to watch on Netflix tonight. You can say, honey, you decided. I don't care. I'm indifferent to it. But it's a totally different situation with what you do with Jesus. And a failure to respond is a response in and of itself. You see, doing nothing is doing something when it comes to Jesus. So let me encourage you here this morning. Don't just simply wash your hands. And most of all, do not walk away from Jesus Christ. Instead, run to Jesus and let him wash away your sin and guilt by the blood that he shed for you. I love how the Lord says it in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It's an invitation from God to all of us here this morning where he says, Come now, let us settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Listen, it is time to decide if you have not already. I want to lead you in a prayer, a prayer to decide to choose Jesus as your Savior and Lord, a prayer to where you bow your heads and you cry out in your heart of hearts, even where you're sitting or at home. Whether you're by yourself, whether you're with family members, you can pray this prayer to have the blood of Jesus Christ wash away your sin, wash away your own guilt. You can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I cannot save myself. I repent of my sins by changing my mind about the way I've been living. And by faith, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. and I receive your gift of salvation. I believe you are the Son of God who, who died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again. And so thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. I receive you by faith as my Savior and Lord. Make me into the person you want to be. Amen. You know, while people are focused on the impact of COVID-19 sweeping across our country and around the world, we're praying here at LifeBridge that God will use the spread of this virus to turn people's hearts toward Jesus Christ and the hope that is found in him. Our mission here at LifeBridge is to bridge the gap between the fear and the panic that's being caused by this virus, and the hope and the peace that is found in our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And one way that you can help us is by continuing to give financially in order to continue the mission of LifeBridge. You know, in our service, if we were meeting here in the auditorium, this would be the time where where we would uh, worship the Lord through the offering, through the giving of our tithes and offerings back to the Lord. And 
And I want to encourage you, we can still continue that even now, at this moment. And if you don't do it right now, maybe sometime this afternoon, and, and while we're scattered abroad in our homes across the Northland, unable to meet here in the, our church auditorium, probably the easiest way that you can continue to give faithfully is through online, through our church website at wearelifebridge.com. If you don't give online, listen, it's simple, it's safe, it's secure. I encourage you to consider this option, especially while we're unable to gather in person on our campus. Obviously, you may also give uh, through the mail. Just mail in your, your giving envelope and your contribution and just put our church address on it, and you can uh, continue to give faithfully in that manner as well. And if you do choose this option, it does help make things a little bit easier in our office if you include your giving envelope. Uh, and so please be aware of that. And if you should have any questions, have any needs whatsoever, please do not hesitate to contact the LifeBridge office. We want you to know that we are still here to serve you in the midst of this pandemic. We realize, especially now that our city is, is issued an order of 30-day home quarantine that people have maybe lost jobs. People maybe will come into a financial need, maybe food needs. Listen, we here at LifeBridge want to bridge the gap for you and meet those needs as well. And so reach out to us, reach out to myself, our church, and we'll do what we can to bridge the gap for you, to serve you and meet the needs of our church community and as well as our community at large. In the meantime, stay strong in the Lord. Keep the faith by staying grounded in God's word and staying connected with other Christ followers. And I hope you'll join us next Sunday, same time, same place, online for our next worship gathering.